faith in thee. What did I do? Oh, I'm sorry. Did we not welcome visitors? Pete, Pete, Pete. Somebody dropped the ball here. Well, if you are a visitor here, in spite of the fact that the pastors before me didn't care about you, I <laughs> care that you are here. It matters to us. Uh, thank you for taking a Saturday morning to come visit with us today. Uh, we have a little gift we like to give to folks who take time out of their schedule to be with us, our way of saying thank you. We appreciate you. If you wouldn't mind standing for a quick moment, these ladies will find you, and the rest of us are going to clap because we appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Um, let me say this. This is probably something that, that maybe you can pass along to friends that you may be inviting or attending the church, maybe if you're new to the church in this season of emphasis in our, in our history. Uh, you know, we're talking a lot about building a building. Uh, we're, we're talking a lot more than usual about money and its importance. We will be doing that uh, today, next week. Uh, you know, I, I do want to draw your attention to something in just a moment. But uh, you know, I realize that talking about money in religious settings has has a black eye for some folks. It's an awkward thing. Um, let's face it. I mean, the reason why it's awkward is because people have done the wrong thing in that category. People have abused that. Well, let me say this. It's wrong. It's uncomfortable for two reasons. One is because churches and leaders in churches have abused uh, access to money, and it's left a bad taste in people's mouths. So that's one end of the equation. But the other end is none of us like people messing with our money. That's the other end. Right? Don't talk about my money. Don't make me feel uncomfortable about how I spend it, about how I live. You know, don't go there. So money being discussed in a religious setting is an awkward thing for folks for probably those two reasons. Um, and people draw conclusions when churches talk about money. I would hope that what you can pass along to anyone who is visiting with us or if you're new to the church is, you know, there's a reality that, that sometimes money is an important element of what God's doing in the midst of people. And, you know, if you were to kind of trace out our storyline as a church, you know, you'd have this once upon a time, there was a little gathering of people who desired to build a church in, in a section of New Orleans called Lakeview. And I'm not talking about us right now. I'm, I'm talking about a little gathering. I think Bill Treby was the only person who was in that gathering. In the early 60s, probably less than 100 people, Bill, 60 or 70 people had a vision together that they were going to build a building that would serve people experiencing the kingdom of God through that vehicle. And so they, they collected money. They took up an offering. A small group of folks built a building there. And that building, uh, the building was tweaked a little bit. You know, we added on to it. We doubled its capacity in some ways. A number of us were here for that in the 90s. But that building, which most of us played no role in or very little role in, served the kingdom of God for over 40 years and touched thousands of lives with the good news of Jesus Christ, people who were saved there, people who were launched into ministry to touch other places that you don't even know about. 
I mean, I don't, I don't know all the personal ministers that came out of that, that building. Gina's uh, related to one that came out of that building who has a church, I don't know, probably a couple thousand people now in Asheville, North Carolina. I know that one personally. I've visited that church. We've learned from observing. That's just one minister that got launched out of that location years ago. And there's many, many more like that. There's many more people who've had their marriages healed, who've had the burden of sin rolled off of their life and been released from that, who found freedom from something that's dominated them and stole their joy all these years. And most importantly, people who have turned their face back to God and have made him the object of their affections. Well, that's been happening for 40-something years in a location that a little group of people footed the bill for and built that building. And now once upon a time, there was a nasty little storm named Katrina that came along and wiped that building out. And yet the work of God continues, and God desires for that work to continue. And it just so happens that you and I are on the watch. We're on the clock in this moment of the kingdom of God. And we're going to build another place that's going to allow us to see ministry for another 40-plus years that's going to outlive us and touch tens of thousands of lives and launch ministers into other locations and see people's lives healed and put back together. And someone's going to have to foot the bill for that. And, you know, God has a method of providing. When we look in the Bible, his method isn't pennies from heaven. It doesn't just rain dollar bills out of the sky. When the, when the kingdom of God needs to go from here to here, that's not how he does it. He does it by motivating his people to find value in his kingdom and give toward it. Well, the only way that can happen for us is for us to talk about the need that's there and the realities of meeting that need and the fact that right now you and I are part of that church. Now, can, can I erase a huge misnomer? For all of us who are a part of the church, no one is here by volunteering. So you have a different view of the church. If you're here today as a volunteer, it's kind of like, well, you know, I just preferred to come here over somewhere else, so I've kind of volunteered. Well, if you, if you see yourself here that way, I, I, would, I would tell you you have an unbiblical view of what you're doing here. You are here by divine assignment. You know, you thought it was your choice. I thought it was my choice to come. When I came, first showed up in this church, I thought I was choosing. I looked around, I found something I liked, and I came. I didn't realize until later and theologically became to understand the work of God, God brought me to this place. He used the vehicles of my preferences and my desires to bring me to a decision to say, I want to be there. But just because I wanted to be there doesn't in any way negate the fact that God assigned me to be there. And so if I understand that, if I'm assigned here, you know, people in the military are assigned to certain locations. They take their skills and abilities and they bring them to that spot and they, they, they touch that place with responsibility and a role to be played. Everybody here has a responsibility and a role to be played. And uh, in talking about money, for those that are new and, and you're visiting, um, this is just where we are right now as a church. And unlike the folks in the 60s, this stinking building is expensive. Goodness. And I'm sure it was expensive for them, though. I mean, everything's relative. There's a whole lot less of them and uh, a lot of expenses for them to foot. 
So a big step of faith was taken by some people that none of us know except for Bill. And the same thing is going to be said 40 years from now. A big step of faith was taken by some people that we don't even know. But they're going to live in the effect of the step of faith that we take. So I think this is, I want us to hear that. If you're visiting, I just kind of want you to understand why. Why is this church talking about money so much? Well, that would not be historically what we've done. Didn't do what we've had to do. But, you know, I want to explain that to you, but I don't apologize for it. I don't apologize for it any more than all the other offensive things I'm going to say today. <laughs> You're going to leave here today and I'm going to have messed with your time use and your opinions on values. Uh, that's just biblical. The Bible messes with our lives. And so if, if we're eager to find a church that will leave us alone, um, this isn't the church to be a part of. Uh, but neither is any biblical church that way, truly. Uh, well, this morning... We're going to talk about faith again from Hebrews, and it's a message that's really about are we really walking in faith in our lives? What, what is real faith? How do we define it? And the title this morning is, How Are You Defining Real Faith? Am I living my life by faith? And we all say we are. We, we looked the last couple of weeks about defining faith biblically and understanding it. And we use this terminology and we can be in great danger of because we can spell faith and we have a little bit of a definition for it in our mind. We think we're living by faith. We think we're walking by faith. Faith gets talked about. I go sit in a covenant group and somebody talks about faith and I think that sounds nice. And I walk away from that meeting not going, I protest. That's all wrong. Uh, and that makes me think. I'm in agreement with faith, and I'm actually walking in faith. But what is real faith? What does it look like? Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 11 together. Hebrews chapter 11. When we, when we find our way, I think really, to Hebrews chapter 10, about verse 19, there's a, there's a great summary taking place. And we've said this whole book was written with the intention of reaching into people's lives and strengthening their faith. This is a, a divine strategy. How does the Bible strengthen our faith? Well, it really starts in Hebrews 1 and runs the whole way through this letter to strengthen the faith of, of those of us who walk with God. When we get to Hebrews 10, about verse 19, there's a summary point there that leads us into Hebrews 11. And Hebrews 11, for all of us who know that, chapter is a great faith chapter in scripture but i want to bring our attention to something here we're just going to read a few bits and pieces of this and remember this i've loved reading this book to study the strategy of it some people when they study war you know they they just go back and look at the timelines and what happened some people study the strategy of the generals Think, how did they think to do that and corner this people that way and bring resources? Well, this book has a strategy in it. It's trying to get us somewhere, and it's using technique to do it. And when we get into chapter 11, let's just pay attention to that. Let me read a little bit for a moment here. Verse 1. Here's, here's faith defined. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. 
By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, if you skip down to verse 6, I think you find a little bit more of a definition or an understanding of the concept of faith. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The very nature of faith itself, this concept, is that I, I acknowledge and believe something about God and I believe in connecting with him there is an effect upon my life that's beneficial. There's a reward in my belief. And that's the nature of faith. Now what I find interesting here, and I put in your notes from Hebrews 11, and how to define real faith, is this chapter takes four verses, 1 through 3 and verse 6, to explain faith. Faith gets explained. It gets a definition and it gets a concept in four verses. And then it takes 35 verses after it to observe faith. Now I think that's a very interesting thing to note. Sometimes we're better about giving an explanation or a definition for faith than we are to pointing to it in our lives. And see, that's exactly the opposite of Hebrews 11. It's almost as though, and, and, and Hebrews 11 starts off with this difficult definition. This has been struggled with. Theologians through the years have struggled with this obscure definition. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Those are, they're hard words to translate into the English, for one thing. And secondly, the concepts are difficult. And it's as, it's as though God knew that when he said it. So let me explain to you real quickly. I'll give you a quick definition for faith, but I know that won't help you. So let me, let me give you all these examples of it. How many of y'all remember that's how you learned algebra? Right, you remember that? The teacher would walk up on the board and... He'd start writing out these formulas, and he would derive from theory, and he'd get the thing down to these uh, various expressions and equations. And I never understood that. I'd watch him do it, and he'd be like, I don't get it. And then he'd pull out an example, and he'd work an example. Oh, I get that. And the examples I could get, but the theory I never could get. Well, there's this theory of faith that's given in four verses, and then there's 35 verses of observation of faith. And when you look through that, you're going to find 38 examples of actions that are displayed from 20 different individuals or people groups. That's a significant thing to understand. When faith seeks to get understood, it gets understood by pointing to what faith does. It points to the actions and the effects of faith. If one wants to know if faith is present in one's life, then one needs to look at the actions that are being produced. Not at whether the person can define faith. That's helpful, but it's not nearly as helpful as observing what faith does and accomplish. Put in your outline, one could conclude, faith is best understood and analyzed by the actions it produces. The reality of your faith is best defined by your actions. A couple of weeks ago I asked the question, how's your faith? Well, how's your faith is answered by examining, examining our actions, not our ideas. We live in an idea world. We love information. We love to be exposed to lots of information. In religious 
settings, that means we've heard all kinds of thoughts and ideas. We've got a lot of ideas about faith. The question is, do we find actions in accord with faith? Do we find motivation and inspiration in us, something on the inside that nudges us to do things that are beyond us, that require an input from God, that are only explained because something strange in us motivated us to do something that's beyond our own natural thinking and ways and patterns and comforts? That's how you find out the condition of faith. Faith in our life is examined by examining our actions. Do we take actions that are motivated by faith? Now, let's turn over one book here. Turn to the right. James offers us a huge amount of help in this explanation. What Hebrews has done by pattern, James does with a huge explanation. Hebrews told us here's a definition and well, here's the best way to understand it. Let's look at all the examples of faith. Let me do this. I, I didn't mean to skip this. Let me look, walk back just for a second. Go back to Hebrews 11. Listen to the way in which this entire chapter unfolds. Once a definition is given for faith, look in verse 4. Now the issue is about what faith does. By faith, Abel offered. And notice all the verbs that are going to be hanging, all the action words that follow, by faith, so-and-so, did. Over and over again, that's a pattern throughout this chapter. By faith, Abel offered. Look down in verse 7. By faith, Noah constructed an ark. That's what he did. And there's some, you know, some clarifying phrases. Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark. By faith, that's what Noah did. Verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed. It's an action word. He obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. That's what he did. By faith, verse 9, he went to live. He went somewhere. This is an action by faith. Again, Abraham in verse 17. By faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. How do you know faith was present in this man's life? Because he left and he went somewhere else and he offered his son. Moses, look over in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born was hidden. Moses was hidden. Well, whose faith was that? It wasn't Moses. It was his parents. A huge amount of faith and trust to take their newborn son and hide him from, from those who could take his life and theirs for doing so. And then to, to, to hide him in the, in the river uh, so that he would be able to escape from the Egyptians. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh. That was an act of faith for Moses to stand one day and say, I refuse to be of the household of Pharaoh. That was an action of faith. How do you know Moses had faith? Because he could explain faith? Or because you could see it in his life? He took actions that were based on faith. Now, turn back to James now. Chapter 2. Verse 14. Here's James' help in us defining real faith. He says, what good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, 
is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith. Right? Don't explain it to me. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way also, same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now that, that verse there has challenged the Christian world for centuries. And what I want to I want to do this as quickly as I can. Uh, I also want to challenge you to to learn to think biblically when you read the Bible. Does that sound obvious? You, and, and this is there's probably hadn't been a generation in hundreds of years that had need to hear that more. Because we we don't read the Bible contextually anymore, and we don't study it systematically. We read it devotionally. We read a verse here, followed by a paragraph by somebody explaining it to us, followed by a pleasant thought, followed by let's get our day going. And when you do that, you can take the Bible apart and really mess it up, make it say all kinds of bizarre things. One of the things to understand faith, I put in uh, two elements in your outline. One is understanding the nature of saving faith, and the other is understanding the nature of sanctifying faith. Now, in reality, that, those two faith dynamics come from the same faith. You don't, like, get saved with one form of faith, and then you walk with another form of faith. But I highlight that because there is a huge breakdown in Christianity between saving faith and sanctifying faith. Faith that believes something to be saved, and then a faith that produces a life. They should be consistent, but in reality, in today's world, it's not consistent. So we need to see them in, in components to help understand them. Let me, let me first deal with what's here in chapter 2, verse 18. The idea of faith versus mental assent. Verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe... That God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Some people just believe and they don't even shudder. Isn't that right? Lots of people believe something about God, but it doesn't produce any fear in them. There's no response to it. So that, that even gives away something here. It would be accurate to say, sounds bizarre, be accurate to say that the devils have more faith than many Christians do. Because I don't know too many Christians who really shudder before God. But the devils do. 
But this highlights a real problem here. This highlights the issue of the difference between faith and acknowledgement. The difference between biblical faith that produces a life, and here that's being highlighted as a life that has works associated with it, works which simply is the working out of something, the activity of faith, and somebody who has a piece of knowledge, somebody who owns a concept in their head. The devil's own concepts in their heads. And I would dare say, and, and probably in most ways, their concepts are more accurate than ours. You do remember the source of the demons, where they came from. The demons are the fallen angels. They stood before God. They beheld him in a way that you and I have not. They know something about his greatness. They've seen him in a way that, that we have not seen him. So do they have a belief in God? Yes. Anybody here want to say they're saved because of that? No. The Bible clearly highlights they're not saved. Not only that, there is no salvation even available to them. It's an interesting understanding of the character of God, by the way. You do realize that God doesn't redeem everything that's fallen. The devils are offered no hope at all. And it is an, it's an expression of the righteousness of God that they are not. And it's an expression of the mercy of God that we are. Do you, do you see that? I mean, this is the personality of God. He is righteous. He is merciful. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And he chose to have mercy on us. But the beings that were angelic that fall, he chooses not to. You want to celebrate grace afresh? Think about that a little bit. Right, I've given this illustration before. Um, when I walk through my neighborhood, I pray at night and I walk. Well, roaches come out at night too. Praying people and roaches. <laughs> and and I have no mercy on roaches. You know, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. And roaches are not one of them. And if roaches appear, just by their nature, I destroy them. You know, by nature, by who I am and by nature, by who they are, this will end in destruction. But when you think about it, by nature, by who God is, in his perfection and his righteousness and his holiness, and by nature, by who we are, in our selfishness and our rebellion and our sinfulness, that a similar event should occur for us. For the sheer opposition that we are to God, we... We should be destroyed. That he doesn't destroy us is an act of mercy. Now, I haven't gotten to that place yet. I haven't yet to see a roach that I go, I feel led to have mercy on you. <clears throat> it just doesn't happen. But with God, it does. Now, do realize the demons receive no mercy. And no one can accuse God of doing the wrong thing. It's, it's God's prerogative to have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And so when we, we come to this place of realizing the demons believe something about God. It's not enough to have knowledge about God. Having knowledge of God is not saving faith. And that's a dangerous place for many of us. Because we think because we acknowledge certain things about God. Do you believe that there is a God? Yes. Do you really believe that Jesus Christ was a real person, came to earth 2,000 years ago? Yes. Yes, I do. You understand neither one of those are saving faith. In and of themselves. They're the same knowledge the demons have. You can sit right next to a demon and the demon will say, yeah, I've seen God. Yeah, I believe in him. Do you believe Jesus Christ came to the earth? Yeah, saw him too. Are you saved? Nope. So you can have knowledge of religious facts and information and not be saved. 
And that's what gets highlighted here. And it would be helpful for us <clears throat> as Christians who live in a very pluralistic society, who have blurred the definition of true faith, real faith, faith that saves and sanctifies. They are one and the same. If you're really saved, then your life really does begin to automatically, as it were, take on certain dynamics of expressing that faith. The idea that you can say you're saved and not have a life that demonstrates it doesn't jive with Scripture. Scripture says the same faith that reaches and receives the grace of God is the same faith that will motivate me on a daily basis to work out that salvation a certain way. Now, listen, I came across this thought, and this is a terrible, terrible thing that's going on as you analyze the church today. This was a study that was done by a prominent sociologist. His name is Alan Wolf. He's the director of the Boise Center at Boston University, and he's a self-described agnostic. Wolf has spent several years now studying the beliefs of evangelical churches to see if they truly live their lives in ways consistent with what they believe. Wolf addresses whether or not evangelicals pose any sort of threat to secularism. His conclusions are here. Dear fellow secular Americans, I know that you are concerned about the religious right and their influence in America. You are worried that they possess too much power and that if they are successful, they will make America into some kind of neo-theocratic state in which religious beliefs stymie the advance of personal moral freedoms in areas such as abortion, religious pluralism, and the normalization of homosexuality in the culture. But fear not, for on the basis of my studies, I have found that while evangelicals claim to believe in absolute truth and an authoritative Bible which governs all of life, they do not live like they say they believe. They say they believe the Bible is the word of God, but somehow, strangely, the Bible always says what satisfies their personal, psychological, and emotional needs. They say they worship an awesome God, but as their deity is not one to be feared because he is pretty much non-judgmental, always quick to point out your good qualities, and will take whatever he can get in terms of your commitment to him. He's God-light, not the imposing deity before whom Israel trembled at the foot of Mount Sinai. This guy knows God better than people who say they know God. But the sort of deity who is always there to give you a fresh supplies of upbeat daily therapy. And as for God's people, well, they're really just like everyone else. No more holy or righteous than the rest of us. Put them in the crucible of character and they'll fold like a cheap suit. In sum, democracy is safe from religious zealots because such people don't really exist in large numbers. So relax. Evangelical Christianity in America is as safe as milk. In every aspect of the religious life, American faith has met American culture, and American culture has triumphed. Whether or not the faithful ever were a people apart, they are so no longer. That's a terrible indictment, isn't it? Now, I don't think that describes every Christian. Um, it just simply describes too many of them who claim a belief in God, but when it gets worked out in their life, no one can find it. There isn't a reality there. It's an acknowledgement of information. It is not a living reality that gets expressed. 
And that's the concern Paul is after here. Uh, I'm sorry, James is after here in this setting. But when we find the scriptures dealing with real faith, look, turn to 1 John just for a second. Real faith produces real life in the Bible. Really believing something produces real effect upon how we live our daily lives. You can show me real faith in how people change, in their values, in their passions, in what they live for and sacrifice to have, what priorities they own, how they use their time, how they use their money. You can show faith. It's observable. First John chapter 3, verse 4 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, the practice of sinning, not somebody who stumbles, not somebody who's seeking to overcome. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. This is just saying what James said in a different way. Faith without works is dead. There isn't any reality of the faith. It's not real faith. If you say you know Christ, but your life is a practice of sin, then you really don't know him, according to the Bible. Little children, no one, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. See, this doesn't make sense in the Bible. You know, you're going to tell me that you have faith, but, but that it doesn't produce any effect in your life. There's nothing to be observed. There's no, there's no change. See, in the Bible, the Bible kind of has this, wait, 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 say that again? Kind of a sound to it when you do that to it. So you're saying, on the one hand, faith comes from God. That's what the Bible teaches. Faith is from God. It is a gift from God. He gives it to us. So it's packaged, it's manufactured in the the, uh, warehouse and manufacturing center of God himself. The perfection of God manufactures faith that is saving and sanctifying. He puts it in a person, and it begins to operate. Listen, this is not a pump bought by the Corps of Engineers. This really does work. It's made by God. You can't sue him. He doesn't make bad products. He puts faith in us, and faith in the Bible, it motivates us. It inspires us. It, it, it sets inside of us pressure that builds up, that you're going to release it. You're, it's going to overwhelm your flesh. You can let your little flesh balloon try and restrain it all at once. You will not restrain the faith of God in your life. It will subdue you, and it will get expressed. So it doesn't make any sense biblically for faith to be something that's not observable, hasn't produced an effect, hasn't produced change. Listen, now we we grow up in a culture, in a religious culture, that's very comfortable with religious ideas that don't produce any effect on the life. (laughs) What pops to mind is years ago, remember the, the, the movie The Godfather? There's a particular scene in this movie. And this, this scene came to life once I was saved. Where Michael Carleone, you know, the young Godfather, he's, he's christening his child. 
in the church. And there's, a, there's scenes flashing during that moment while he's christening the child. His thugs are murdering rival mobsters throughout the city. Several of them being gunned down, heads blown off, just vicious blood spattered everywhere. Right? Remember some of these scenes? Guy trapped inside the little revolving door gets all shot up. While Michael is christening his child, he walks out of the building and he gets into his car and they drive off. Is there a problem with that kind of faith? I know that's a ridiculous example. I don't know anybody else who's done that, anybody. I know lots of people, however, who can put put their lives into a religious setting and become very comfortable with the terminologies, the ideas, and then live as worldly and sinful in the setting over here as you can ever imagine. People who can practice selfishness and and drunkenness and and harm to their own families uh, and, and not have a sense of conviction and desire to grow and change. And you can't bring it up with them. And who the heck are you to tell me how I'm to live my life? And, and arrogance comes flowing out of them the second you begin to touch any issue of sin. You know, if you're a Christian, humility ought to be something that, that easily, easily comes into the scope of reality for you. How can you not? You... You got saved understanding you're the biggest charity case on the planet. You need a handout. God's going to have to save you because you aren't good enough. That's how Christianity starts. How can you not be humble? Somebody comes along and informs you that you fail in some area? Are you surprised? How dare you? <laughs> you think you are, man? <laughs> you said what about me? How does that person stand at the foot of the cross and say, I desperately need to be forgiven? How does, this, how does that happen? How does a faith that believes in a Savior not be able to entertain the fact that I fail on a regular basis? How many folks do you know, though, who have religious faith, who have no humility in their lives? People who, when it comes to the saints, only know about a football team in New Orleans. If you're in New Orleans, it takes you a while to get biblical in that word, doesn't it? It takes a long time. You know, we're going to see the saints. You immediately don't think you're going to church, do you? People who read the sports page every day of their life but haven't picked up a Bible once. But yet they have faith. Oh, really? I'm going to stand with James. Really? Show me. Show me your faith. By your works. Don't tell me what you believe. Don't tell me. Oh, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he died on the cross. Don't tell me. Hebrews takes that in four verses, but then it provides 35 more to say if your faith is real, you can show it to me. You just can't tell me about it. You can show it to me. That's the reality of saving faith in our lives. Now, let me clarify something here about faith and works. And and what I would encourage us to do, if you're going to try and understand faith and works, the only scripture that addresses that is not James. This is what systematic theology is all about. Systematic theology stands back from the Bible and it says, one God inspired all this. This isn't clashing ideas that were owned by individuals that, well, of course James contradicts Paul. (laughs) Of course those two guys aren't saying the thing. They're just men. No, this is one book inspired by God. So 
every element of it came from the mind of God, and it all fits together. Now, it might take you studying it to discover how it fits together, but they all fit together. Now, on the one hand, you have James here highlighting the fact that, that faith without works is dead. Says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Time out. So does the Bible then teach that one is justified by his works? Well, I don't know. Let's, let's get more scripture involved here. If we look at Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to do a quick little Bible sword drill here with me. Ephesians chapter 2. Justification is the moment, the moment in which we are declared forgiven and accepted by God. That's what justification is. Does anyone get justified because God weighs the works of their life and says, ah, finally, enough goodness in you for me to say, hey, we're okay now, buddy. Does the Bible teach that anywhere? I think when you look through the Bible, you're going to find out it does, not only does it not teach it anywhere, it opposes it everywhere. And so when you come to James and you're going to let James speak and you can try to understand, what was James saying here? Was, was James being inspired by the Spirit of God to contradict everything else that's gone before it? Or do I need to understand what he's saying in light of what everybody else has been saying? Well, that's how we interpret Scripture. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, not only does this say you're saved by grace, which that statement in and alone of itself would be enough to say that, well, then works does not justify us. Right? Remember, we read this last week in Romans chapter 11. You cannot mix a dropper full of man's merit with grace and still call grace, grace. Verse 11, verse 6 of, of Romans 11. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now, are you tracking with me so far? What the Bible clearly says is salvation is a matter of grace. It is not a matter of merit. It is not a matter of works. You are not justified back up into Romans further, Romans 3. Verse 20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. No human being. Might that include Abraham? Well, sure it would. No human being means no human being. So not even Abraham is justified before God by the attainment of works, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So how does one get justified? By his grace. And grace cannot involve works, otherwise it's no longer grace. Okay, now I'm just kind of taking you through a quick systematic study of one topic. Works as it pertains to faith. So does anybody get justified by works? All right, let me get, can I give us a timeline here? 
I'm walking along up here. The podium there represents the day of my salvation. God is at work in my life. Things are going on. As a timeline here, there are works happening in my life. Things are going on. I come to this point, and at a point by faith, I receive the grace of God, and I become saved. I'm accepted by God. My sins are forgiven, and God says, you are my son, and you're welcome in my family now. Now, something's going to happen on the other side of this timeline that still involves Keith Collins. It's called works. Now, those works mean something. I'm already past the point of justification, aren't I? Nobody is partially justified in here. No one's a little bit accepted. You're either justified or you're not. That's, it's, either, it's an on-off switch. It's not a dial. You either flip it on, you are, or you are not. So once you're justified, you are justified. Well, what's the place of works? Well, if we read the rest of the scriptures, go back to Ephesians 2 again. We have grace. We're saved through grace. Faith is given to us in order for that to occur. And then in verse 10, right after that, says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here's the economy of God. You are lost, separated. Your works don't amount to anything. The Bible, systematically again, the Bible says your righteous, your righteousness and mine is as filthy rags. The very best thing that I could do before God is still stained by my imperfection. So it's no longer any of use in the category of justifying me. So I come and at a moment in time I receive the grace of God and I am fully justified. By faith. Now that faith that received the grace of God is the faith that lives inside of me now. And that faith that compelled me to say yes to God. Right? That's what that faith did, didn't it? You'd heard this stuff. I grew up around religious information, for goodness sake. I never had a desire to respond to it. Until 1979. The faith of God came into my life. And all of a sudden now, I wanted this. I want to, I, yes, oh God, here I am, have me. Well, the same responsive faith that says yes to salvation now exists in me. And it responds to God. And it says no to sin and yes to righteousness. And I will pursue that, but I won't want that anymore. And, and now works begin to come out of my life. That's what James is saying. If you get on the other side of justification and you can't find faith working, then whatever you thought happened back there, you, you drop the baton in the race. You thought you got it, but you found out, I, I don't really have faith. I got a lot of knowledge, but you had knowledge before. And by the way, the devils have the knowledge that you had too. But when you received salvation by faith, really received it, works begin to happen. For example, Abraham. Abraham gets justified by God much before he ever sacrifices Isaac. But the expression of sacrificing Isaac is an expression of real faith. How did, how did Abraham offer up his son? Because he believed God way back in Genesis 12, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And then later, as he walked out that faith that he had in God, and God said, offer me your son. He said, yes, I will. Does that make sense? That's a quick detour. But it's very important to understand real faith, real saving faith that works itself out into realities in our lives. Now, 
What about this concept of sanctifying faith? The Bible says the righteous lives by faith. You get saved by faith by receiving the grace of God. And then you live by faith. Every day of our life should be an expression of this internal faith that's in us. I think Matt had quoted this verse earlier, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. You want to talk about radical change. It's no longer. Something huge has happened in my life. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Not just any kind of faith. I'm not just a positive person. I don't just get up in the morning and say, uh, everything's going my way today. I feel great. Don't you feel great? Come on, you just got to be positive. This isn't faith in being positive. This is faith in the Son of God. Faith in Jesus Christ, as we said two weeks ago. Faith has an object to it, and it's the most important thing about it. It's what you believe. So every day of my life that I live in the flesh ought to have components that reflect my faith in the person and work of Christ. Everything I do, the way I get up in the morning and face the day. Are you happy about facing the day? I'm so depressed in the morning. Every day, do you realize the Redeemer of the universe is at work today in your life and all around you? The kingdom of God is going to come today in your life, all around you? Do you believe that? Well, you can't believe that and be depressed, can you? Well, I just find, I don't see any reason to even get out of bed in the morning. You don't believe that. That's not faith. Oh, but I've I got a lot of knowledge. That's the problem. That's not living by faith. Oh, I've done so many things wrong in my life. I just don't know how. I know they're going to come back to haunt me. That's not faith. That's not faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ took my sins to the cross and released me from them. I've got no debt to pay. There's not some looming gray cloud because I had a terrible life before Christ. My life has been redeemed. Do I wake up in the morning and face the day that way? Oh, my wife's not responding. She's this or she's that. And I'm, you know, if you, if you, if you, if you had a wife like I have, listen to me, man. That's not faith. That's not a faith that gets up and say every day, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Do I believe a Redeemer lives in my life? Do I believe a Redeemer lives in my life? Do I believe that the Son of God, who overcame all that he did on my behalf to, to bless and protect his purpose in my life, do I believe that? Well, if I do believe that, it will produce certain works and certain dynamics in my life. And, you know, when we walk through all these guys that are in Hebrews, right? Go back to Hebrews 11 for a second. And you look at these examples that are here. These guys... They lived by faith. They took actions that were based in faith. Remember I said, I think, the first week, you know, faith lives right next door to crazy. I mean, you're going to do stuff that, okay, uh, wow, that's awful close to just looking crazy. <laughs> How do you explain doing that? Well, I have this assurance. Well, where do you get assurance from? Well, you're not going to believe this, but you really can't see why. Do you hear voices as well? <laughs> you know, uh, well, you, I see things. What can I say? I just see things. <laughs> Believers see things. 
that everybody else isn't there. I'm telling you, faith lives right next door to crazy. I mean, look at these guys who are listed here. Noah. How many people do you think thought Noah is nuts? This guy has lost his mind. Noah, what on earth are you building? God has spoken to me. Oh, really? What did God say, Noah? He told me to build a great big boat. (laughs) What's a boat, Noah? (laughs) Well, it's something that floats on water. (laughs) Floats on water. Noah, we live on the edge of a mountain. Uh, We've never even seen the ocean. How will this thing ever float? Does it work well in sand? (laughs) Uh, No, but from what I understand about God, it's going to rain real bad for a while. and He's going to cover the entire world with water. Rain, what would that be, Noah? <laughs> you understand in the Bible, there was, a, there was a vapor canopy over the earth. That, they hadn't even seen rain at this point. And this man takes a huge portion of his life, gets up every day and works hard and dedicates himself every day to a decision that he makes in faith. You see, it didn't become sight until drops began to fall. I don't remember how many years, but decades have passed before he saw a drop of rain. This guy's crazy, isn't he? Or he's a man who lives by faith. Abraham is a man living by faith. Abraham hears God tell him, leave, leave her the Chaldees, Abraham. And, and well, God, where am I going? Well, you don't need to know that right now. Just, just leave. Do you understand the faith involved in leaving without even knowing where you're going? Make Abraham a real man. Abraham turned around one day and walked, took his keys and locked the building that had Abraham's fine foods, herds and flocks over the door. That had been a family business for decades that he had been a part of. Everything he knew about his livelihood, his next paycheck was coming out of Ur the Chaldees. He didn't know anything else but life in Ur the Chaldees. And God comes along and says, Abraham, follow me. That sounds crazy. you imagine explaining that to your wife? Uh, honey, where are we going? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Why are we leaving <laughs> if we don't know where we're going? And he gets there and God shows him. Moses. Remember Moses' refusal? Do you understand the amount of faith in this man? He's growing up in the most, I mean, this is, Egypt was sort of like America. You were in the most modern, wealthiest nation on the planet, and he is in the household of the Pharaoh. Dude, you have got it made. You see all those people sweating and slaving out there? You see how hard life can be? Did you read the headlines about how Egypt defeated another army and is going to conquer those lands and make all them slaves next? You've been reading the news, pal? You're in Egypt, and you're part of the household in Egypt. What on earth are you doing refusing that wealth, refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh? To choose what? It says he chose to be numbered amongst the Israelites, the slave people, because he believed it was more rewarding. Go back to that verse. I can't pass this up. Good verse 24, Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, 
choosing, he chose this rather, to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You want to understand how faith operates? Stare at that verse until the pages, the words leap off the page to you. Why did this man by faith refuse something that had pleasure in it? Why did he say no to that? Because he believed that would be better for me. It wasn't just some stoic guy who decided, you know, it's more spiritual to suffer. I'll choose to be a slave. That's more noble. No, this guy had an appetite for fun. He wanted the best. And he realized the passing pleasures of sin aren't the best. Following God, that's the best. I want that. I'm willing to say no to this. This was faith. This was huge faith. This is how faith operates. Remember this passage? I put it in your outline from Matthew 13:44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. This is the kingdom. This is what it's like to really be a Christian. This is what we look like from the standpoint of biblical faith. It's finding something that you find to be so valuable and so rewarding that you're willing to give everything up to have it. Everything. This guy sells everything. But, but do you see why he sold it? Does anybody here look at this guy and think, oh, man, I, I, bet, I bet that was terrible. He sounds excited. Look at this thought from Randy Alcorn. He speaks about the rich man in another passage. He says, when a rich young man pressed Jesus about how to gain eternal life, Jesus told him, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. The man was obsessed with earthly treasures. Jesus called him to something higher, heavenly treasures. But the seeker considered the price too great. Sadly, he walked away from real treasures. This young man wasn't willing to give up everything for a greater treasure. But our traveler in the field was. The guy who discovered the hidden treasure? Why? Because the traveler understood what it would gain him. He feels sorry for the traveler. After all, his discovery cost him everything. But we aren't to pity this man. We're to envy him. It cost him everything he owned, you might lament. Yes. But it gained him everything that mattered. See, that's, that's, what, that's what real faith, real faith believes something. When it makes a decision to refuse a pleasure or some comfort, or something that we crave or desire in our lives, and we say no to that, it's because we believe something else is greater than that. It's not just noble self, uh, whatever, putting yourself away and telling yourself no over and over again. So when we look at people in the Scriptures, they took steps of faith that were radical, that cost them something in their lives. See, when you come to this issue of faith, You can show people faith. Faith is observable. Faith has actions to it. And 
Let, let us be very careful. The Bible gives examples like this, and we can become just as guilty of this. I think I called in your outline something about, you know, believing covenant ideas and acknowledging covenant ideas. God is our God. and God's for us. Acknowledging those ideas but not taking actions based on them. God is a mighty God. God is powerful. God is our provider. Acknowledging all those things but not having anything in my life that I can say, you know what, because I believe that, I did this and I did that. I stepped out right there because I believe that about God. I did that right there. Instead, we kind of live this protected, oh, I don't know. But we acknowledge all kinds of great things about God, but we don't ever do anything. So this is the problem that was in the children of Israel. They knew. They're, they're the covenant people of God. They're God's special people. He's committed to them. He sent them prophets. He led them. He protected them. He was going to bless them. He told them that. And they believed all that, but they had a hard time doing stuff with it. God led them out of Egypt to bring them to the promised land. What happened when the 12 spies went over to visit the promised land? They saw giants in the land. There's people there. Their cities are fortified. This, this isn't going to work. Wait, wait, wait. I don't understand. You just said all those great things about God. God just did all that stuff in Egypt. You, you forgot about all that? All right, 12 spies, 10 come back and say, this can't work. You don't understand, there's walls around the city, guys, walls. You know, we, don't, we don't have any tanks here, you know. There's walls. We can't even get to these people. And they're giants, and if they get to us, we're in trouble. Only two of them stand and walk in faith. Say, yeah, you're right. There are walls, and there is a lot of difficulty in front of us. But God said, God's for us. We can do this. Remember, remember the showdown between the Philistines and the, and the Israelites in the valley, two sides of this valley on the edges of the mountain. The Philistines are on one side, the Israelites on the other. And on a daily basis, this big goon named Goliath walks into the middle of that valley and he shouts across it to the Israelites and he taunts them. Can you imagine what that really sounded like? And we get a little bit of a play of it, and we're told about a couple of the exchanges. But he insults them. People think you're so great. Send somebody down. Day after day after day, no one comes until a little boy named David comes, and he listens to this exchange, and he is totally confused by it. See, for him, it doesn't make sense, right? If you believe God, then you do something. And he watches this happen, and it's like, why isn't that guy dead? <laughs> I don't understand. How This has been going on for how long? What on earth is happening here? That dude should be dead. Here, give me something. I'll go take care of it. Why? Because he said, I know, you know from here he doesn't look that big, and I'm pretty strong. You know, this was not self-faith. This was faith in God. He knew something about God that compelled him to do something. Hey, all you Israelites, do you believe in God? Oh, yes, we do. Yes, yes. Do you believe God is mighty? Oh, yes, we do. Yes. Do you believe he's worthy and his name is not to be insulted? Oh, yes, we do. Yes, yes. Only one of them did anything. See, biblical faith is show me faith. You can see it. It makes people do stuff. It makes you step out and do things that make you look like you live right next door to crazy. 
I mean, David, the people thought David was crazy, didn't they? David, you've seen the size of this guy? I will say this. I think there was a little bit of faith in one other guy. Saul. Saul let him go. I mean, I'm thinking, Saul, you big stinking wimp. You, you give this kid armor that doesn't even fit him. You send him out in the battle. But you remember the deal. The deal was, Goliath said, look, if I beat whoever you send, you all become my slaves. So Saul sends David. Saul had a little more faith than I think we give him credit for in that moment. But bottom line, and this is, this is very important for us. Let me close with some thoughts for us today. Bottom line is, let's, let's not be a people who have an explanation about faith but can't point to observations of faith. Let's not be a people who can, when we talk about faith, we can tell people things about God and things about doctrine and things about salvation, but, but you can't point to things in your life and say, the faith of God, the faith of God, the faith of God. If you were to think for a moment, things that you're doing in your life, what, what are you doing that requires faith on your part? Have you retreated into a very natural world that is manageable by your own strength, your own abilities, what you're comfortable with? You don't take any risks. You don't step out. You know, just We've created a very safe world for us, and we retreat into it, and we say we believe in God. We believe in God. We believe in Jesus and what he did. Or do we break out of that thing? Do we take risks? We step out and try things. Listen, I'm going to give you guys an immediate application for this. Building this building is a huge step of faith. Now, if you want to get a better understanding of how huge it is, you're going to be handed one of these on your way out today. This is Lakeview Christian Center Building Project Analysis. And it is an attempt to try and get all these months of study and information that we've been doing into your hands so you can understand all the elements of the project, how big it is, how much cost there is involved, what are the cost factors, where can we find some cost to reduce some of it, how much ability do we have to meet the need there? I mean, how many of us are there? I mean, most, I mean you attend the church, you have no idea what the church budget is, you don't even know how many people are here. And I understand that. I mean, I'm not requiring that anybody would know that. So what we've done is we've taken the information that we're familiar with and kind of put it into a form. I hope it's easy to follow along. It's got explanations for most of the lines that are here. Uh, Tried to anticipate some questions that might be asked that are in the last section about kind of why we're approaching things, some of the ways we are. Uh, This is intended to do two things. One is to just inform you so that you can participate. And this isn't. This project doesn't belong to the leaders of the church. It belongs to the church, and so it belongs to every one of us. And and so really, it you you're assigned here by the sovereignty of God. You need to know what part you're, you're called to play. And so this will help you understand that. It'll help you understand how many of us there are and how we can go about doing this. But what you're going to see here is you're going to see a number here that says on, on the. Third page, it says project expenses versus funding. Current project status, $1.5 million short of needed funding. $1.5 million short. And there's some, some ways that we can think about closing that gap. That's a giant. That's the, the, 
The spies have gone into the land and have come back and said, there's walls and big people and expensive contractors and, and the list goes on. And so there's a reality here in this moment that we're going to be called as a church to take a step of faith in doing this. And what I, I want everybody to consider is families this week. Next week we have the, the business meeting. We'll come together. We'll, we'll listen to suggestions and questions and thoughts that you get as you read through this and um, ponder together. Listen for wisdom that God could certainly put in any of our lives for all of us to benefit from. So we will take time to do that and to listen carefully and see how the Lord will, will lead us through your input as well. At some point here, probably beginning next week, and we'd like to ask for you to be ready to pull the trigger on this. I mean, we're, we're on top of doing this thing now. All the thoughts of, well, the building might be this, and the cost might be this, and the timing might be this. Uh, we could hire the contractor tomorrow. We have a permit from the city. Hallelujah. Everybody has signed off on it. <clears throat> now, we, we have permission for the contractor to have the permit, actually, is accurate. Uh, they won't give it to the owner. They only give it to the contractor. It's time to do this. That's where we are. We've been talking about doing it. We've been talking about expanding and growth and other facility for a few years. Katrina changed the time frame of our preferences on that. Um, It's time to make a decision. It's time to do something. It's time for faith to not be talked about anymore. It's time now for, for us to take a step of faith. Us to take a step of faith. Well, what does it look like for a church to take a step of faith? Well, it looks kind of like a body taking a step of faith, right? And this is a biblical illustration. The body is one with many members. Now, watch what happens here. You guys can't even see the little toe right now, can you? But I'm going to take a step of faith right now. Where's that little toe? It stepped with me, didn't it? It's not back there. It didn't hang out over there. The whole body takes a step of faith when the body takes a step of faith. That's how God's designed it. Every part does its part, whether you think it's a major element or a little element. And every part in this regard, as we've looked today at these passages, as well as where we are as a church, in this regard, uh, we're going to need to take David-type faith. Not, maybe not Saul-type faith. Sure, yeah, you go ahead and fight. I'm with you. I hope somebody here has a big offering in mind, whoever you are. I, I just hope, you know, somebody here is going to do it. And, and I'm with you. I'm right behind you the whole way. No. That's not biblical faith for a local church that's walking together as a body. It means everybody stops and thinks, what does it mean for me to strap on the armor and go out there and face that giant? What does it mean for me to do that? It means you looking at the finances in your life, how you can budget things differently, personally, as a family, what you have access to by way of funding and savings. It means you taking everything that makes up your life and bringing it before God and saying, God, what would you have me do with this? And let me say it that way very carefully. Everything in your life is there by the provision of God. And when you and I come into the kingdom, do we really come in faith? Do we really come like a people who have discovered a treasure hidden in the field 
and we're ready to liquidate everything in our life for the sake of that treasure's value. Well, the Bible in that passage says the kingdom of God is like a treasure. Do we love the kingdom of God so much that we'd say, you know what, God, when you saved me, everything became yours. And I'm ready to liquidate. I'm ready to do whatever for your kingdom to come. Well, I think we need to go before God. And next week, beginning next week as we're together, and then probably the one more week after that, um, we're going to want to solidify offerings and giving in this category. And so please don't wait until next week to begin to ask God about where your faith is. Do that this week. And then there's more details to come, and as you read through this, it will probably answer a lot of those. But everyone here needs to consider, what have I been doing and what can I do to take a step of faith? And God will lead us. And, and, and we're trusting, believing God, uh, that this is a season that, that God's going to do something very unique in our lives. And, you know, I, I, listen, I know this whole money thing is always, always a sensitive issue. Um, try to respect that for the place that it needs to be respected. But not leave it alone because the Bible doesn't leave it alone. I mean, you understand the Bible doesn't leave our money alone. Let me say it this way. You know why the Bible doesn't leave our money alone? And I hope I get some shock value out of this. Because the reality is, if God doesn't have your money, he doesn't have your life. Oh, that's not true. I mean, I serve this way and I do that and I make time for this and I, and I read my Bible. Let me tell you something. As one who has surrendered his money to God, if God doesn't have your money, He doesn't have your life. You just think he has your life. And if you give him your money, you'd be amazed at the effect it will have on your walk with God. Is that that just some selfish thing for me to say at this point? Listen, can I tell you selfishly, selfishly, I don't want to build this building. Because it intimidates the tar out of me. I have had the pleasure of pastoring a church in these years that hasn't had to pay for stuff like this. You know how nice it is not to have to worry about how many of you I ran off today? Not to worry about that. Let's preach the truth. Preach convictions. Live them. And people leave. People do leave churches. You all know that, right? People leave. They don't like the way you said that. They don't like the way you handle that. You know, we haven't had to to figure out, how do we make that payment? How do we make this payment? We're about to sign on for that. Do you you think I'm going, this is going to be great? Not from that category, no. The only reason why I would be willing, I think the other guys would feel the same way. The only reason why I'd be willing to, to put us in that position is for the reward God affect more people like he has to you. See, I know know your stories. I can look around here. I see marriages that have been restored. I see people who have come out of depression and controlling sins in their lives. 
I see people who spend themselves on God. I see people who sacrifice and have a value system that reflects God's great worth in their lives. I, I see families that see an opportunity for the glory of God to be lived in their marriages, in the way they raise their children. I, I have the, the privilege of reading your testimonies when you submit them to be baptized, of hearing reports and stories of people who come through Alpha who just see these real people flashing in my head right now who have been rescued from tragedy in their lives sin was destroying their lives tragedy had come and taken joy from their lives and to see some of those people now and you get around them and their joy is contagious. And they are delighting themselves in God. And you look at them and you think, how can you be happy after what you've gone through? Except you know, because God redeems. And God brings a fresh sense of joy into their lives. People who have jumped forward into the kingdom of God, sacrificing time and money. And I think, Lord, how many more thousands are there just like these that you want to reach? So I, I, I think I know a little bit about what, little bit about what Moses must have experienced when he refused a certain form of comfort in exchange for a greater reward. Please understand, it's very comfortable not to have to figure out how to pay a $50,000 bill every month. I think everybody can relate to how comfortable that is. But there's an opportunity for the kingdom of God. And I'm grateful that somebody footed the bill for me to be able to collide with the kingdom of God and be in a place where I was discipled and cared for and encouraged and strengthened and rescued out of sin. And how do you put a value on that for people? So can I encourage you this week? Pray and be ready. It's time to step. It's time to stop talking. It's time to do. And we have the opportunity for faith to be real, biblical faith. And, and I, believe, I believe we're about to be amazed by God and what he does. Many of you here have given us cause to, to lean into being amazed. You made incredible sacrifices in your lives. You know, we don't publicize people's giving. <clears throat> but boy, some of you guys are provoking Wonderfully provoking in the way in which you have found value in the kingdom of God. Some of you young people are just, you are, you are broadcasting the excellency of God. You live in a culture as a pivot age person who at your, at your age you ought to be buying every gadget, dressing with every style, trying to own something new, trying to, to get the newest of this and the newest car. And, and some of you people are given unbelievable amounts of money to this. What it does is it, 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 it causes me to look at your life and to say, you think 
God's it, don't you? <laughs> you think his kingdom's more valuable than anything else on the planet. You provoke me to want to live that way more. So thank you. Thank you, all of you who are provoking our lives by the way in which your faith is observable.